This is a HeadGum Podcast. There's something magical about unboxing. When you unbox BritBox, you uncover a world of British entertainment. Stream the UK's most brilliant series, including new and upcoming seasons of Shetland, Father Brown and Death in Paradise. Plus new originals like Payback, Irvin Welsh's Crime and Archie, the story of Hollywood's greatest leading man, Cary Grant. Unbox BritBox and escape to the best of British TV. Stream with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I don't know the truth. I don't know the way. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to say. Welcome to Factually, I'm Adam Conover, and you know, Americans have a reputation of being kind of selfish, right? Focused only on ourselves and our own country's problems, but you know, in a lot of ways, that's not quite true. Americans actually do care quite a bit about suffering outside of our borders. You know, every year, we donate about $44 billion to address poverty abroad. That's our personal charity. It's equal to the entire GDP of Uzbekistan, and by the way, that doesn't even include the aid money spent by the U.S. government directly. But, you know, donating a whole Central Asian Republic worth of charity abroad every year doesn't guarantee that we're actually going to achieve the goals of that charity. You know, helping others on a global scale is actually a lot harder than we'd like to think, even if we're working with what we think is a revolutionary new idea. Take micro-lending. Micro-lending was a massive trend in poverty alleviation over the last few decades. The idea behind it is simple. See, since historically poor people in the developing world did not have access as to banking, the thought was that micro-lending could fix that by offering them loans. Hey, to lift them out of poverty, don't give them money, lend it to them. That way they can become successful, small-scale entrepreneurs. Ideally, it works something like this. With a small loan, even just a few hundred dollars, poor people might buy chickens to start a little chicken coop, right? Or a, an egg business, or a cart to help sell firewood, or a fridge to keep their surplus chicken cold and out of the smoke from their surplus firewood, right? And since they need to repay the loan, now they have an incentive to work hard enough to pay it back, which, hey, theoretically is the same hard work required to pull themselves out of poverty. The poor person wins, the person who lent them money wins, everybody wins. You know, teaching a man to fish is better than giving him a fish or whatever, except here, instead of teaching him to fish, you're giving him a bank loan. All right, it's a little confusing, but maybe it's the same principle, right? Well, the benefits of this were supposed to be huge. Micro-lending's promoters promised it would be a tool of women's empowerment and increase school attendance for poor children. Through micro-lending, small communities could become self-reliant and flourish. You know, doesn't this sound great? I mean, if you listen close, you can almost hear the inspiring music playing in the background of the PSA, right? Well, 
The essential cheerleader behind microlending was the economist and social entrepreneur Dr. Mohammed Yunus. In the 1980s, Yunus founded the model institution for microlending around the world, Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, and he was a tireless promoter who made huge claims. He said that poverty would be eradicated by microlending in a generation. Soon, he said, he actually said this, we'd have to take our kids to poverty museums to show them how people used to suffer. Now, first of all, that sounds like a bad way to spend a Saturday. Who wants to go to the Poverty Museum for fun, you know? But also, that is a big claim. Eunice was literally telling people that poverty would be collecting dust in the Natural History Museum next to the woolly mammoths and the cavemen. Well, you know, people bought it because through the 90s through the 2000s, micro-lending became a macro trend. The global rich and famous flocked to this idea. Micro-lending's advocates included UN Secretary General Kofi Annan, economist Jeffrey Sachs, and U2's lead singer Bono, a man who literally looks at the world through rose-colored glasses. And all this hype had an effect. The United Nations declared 2005 the International Year of Microlending, and in 2006, Eunice and the Grameen Bank won the Nobel Prize. But despite this frenzied enthusiasm, there was a problem at the core of the idea— it didn't work. The billions of dollars invested in microlending did not bring the transformative results for the poor that were promised. A series of studies showed that on the overall, microlending didn't even increase household income. Often, people didn't even use the money from the loans to start a business. Instead, they used it to buy something they wanted or needed. You know, sometimes you don't need a refrigerator for your chicken business. You just need it for your own damn food, right? So it doesn't spoil. The studies showed that access to microlending didn't increase women's empowerment. It didn't lead to more investment in, in children's education. And in fact, we now know that even if it doesn't actually hurt poor people, it doesn't really help them much either. It turns out that whether you give someone fish or teach them to fish, the one thing fishless people need is fish, not, you know, debt. Microlending was an idea that seemed promising at first, but it turned out to be too good to be true. Because the truth is... Helping people in developing nations is harder than we think. You know, conditions in different places might require different kinds of solutions that aren't always apparent to those of us who, you know, haven't been there or don't live there. And when we take a hard look at the groups who wield power in the world of global development, you'll find that a lot of them aren't actually just looking out for the poor. They're also trying to further their own interests as well. It's a complex, difficult problem with no easy answers. Well, to help us understand the world of global aid and development and helping the poor overseas a little bit better, our guest today is Sopal Ear. Sopal is a professor of diplomacy and world affairs at Occidental College. He's the author of Aid Dependence in Cambodia, How Foreign Assistance Undermines Democracy. And he is also one of the first guests we ever had on Adam Ruins Everything. So it's really wonderful to reunite with him and bring him back on the show. Please welcome Sopal Ear. Yeah. So wait, finish your Sam Watterson yeah. story. Oh yeah, so I, I think I went there once because he held a, an event for Refugees International, uh -huh. which um, turns out to have been to be an organization that started when um, the Indochina refugee crisis happened, and uh, he went on because he went on their board because of the Killing Fields, in which he played Sidney Schamberg, New York Times reporter. That, mm. I don't know if you ever saw the movie, but anyhow, I thought, oh great, I, I, I saw him at LAX and. 
we started talking. Next thing you know, I'm on the board of Refugees International. <laughs> <laughs> hey, anything can happen at LAX. I know, LAX. Of course, he was just done telling this nice young Asian couple that he doesn't do pictures because they were asking for pictures with him. And I thought, oh, <laughs> shit, I'm going to go up to him and, and tell him, I'd like pictures with you, Mr. Watterson. I'm a Cambodian refugee survivor of the, of the, of the killing fields. And he actually was really cool about it. But even at the end, I said, can I have a picture with you? He said, nope, nope, better not. <laughs> And then you won't believe this. There was a guy there who secretly took our picture and put it on Instagram. Oh. So there's a picture of that very moment where he's sitting <laughs> with me and I'm telling my story of my family's survival. So this is an only an LAX story. And there's a picture of you with Sam Watterson at a moment where he's telling you in the picture, well, I don't do pictures. He, it wasn't probably that precise moment, but it was like the guy was writing, oh, so Paulier tells his story of escaping the Khmer Rouge to Sam Watterson of the Killing Fields. And yeah. you know, it's unbelievable. Like... Right when I had wow. said, you know, I, it's just too weird. People are watching all the time and taking <laughs> secret pictures. They really are. Yeah. They really are. Yeah. I, I had a photo taken of me and my girlfriend. I was, I had just taken her from a root canal uh, in Beverly Hills. We were leaving the dentist office. She had gotten dental surgery. She had Novocaine. She could barely speak. And we were standing outside and a paparazzi a block away took a photo of us. And that photo is now for sale on the Getty Images website for $500, which is ridiculous. You can buy a license for it right now for $500. I'm wearing like my gross like shorts. She's wearing, you know, uh, she's, I mean, she's got like cotton wadded in her mouth. It's, it's And the caption says, Adam was taking his girlfriend. <laughs> it doesn't. It just say Adam Conover seen on the streets of Beverly Hills. Oh, jeez. Uh, I haven't seen you since you were in our very first. You were one of the few, the first experts we ever had on the show on the pilot of oh, Adam no. Ruins Everything. I believe in the uh, the like February of 2015, something like that. Pretty unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. It was at that. Catholic uh, school. We that, shot it at a Catholic high school. I yeah. know, I know, and 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 then I it was like all like seven a.m. show up, and <laughs> I had no idea what I was in store for because I've never done these things. But it's been, it's it was an amazing experience to just see well, the beginning of this idea, this concept that yeah that you were. I mean, who who knew that you'd be? How many shows now in? We've done sixty four episodes. Sixty four. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But but you uh you were very patient because we it was the first time we were sh we were just now when we have experts on set I I have a whole spiel to them. Hey, it's a little bit different from other TV appearances. You're going to do there's kind of a script you know we're going to get a couple get it a couple different ways but that was the that, that was the very first time we were doing it, so we didn't know how it was going to go yet. And I'm pretty sure we also made you do your lines 50,000 times. 50,000 times because we were, you know, it was our director's first time directing this show this way. And so we're like getting all sorts of coverage. And I just remember you being, uh, I'll say, extraordinarily patient. <laughs> well, I just knew that I was not repeating the same thing each time because I'm not the kind of person <laughs> who just, you know, memorizes lines and says them flawlessly. And right. then, and then your, your professional actors were continuing their part of the of the of the show so that whatever <laughs> I feel and I'm like wait why is he talking now it's because he's actually or she is actually a professional and that's what they do they continue on to the next line regardless well that's so. what that's what people like about the experts on our show is that they're not quite you know, there you, you we we can tell that you're real people because actors they've got it down, and just that little bit of uncomfortability is what makes it credible. Um, but uh, tell me, I you alluded to it earlier your your history as a as a Cambodian refugee. I only found out about this after you were on the show. Um, can you tell me that story a little bit? Sure. I uh, my family 
escaped Cambodia after the Khmer Rouge took power in 1975. So they took power April 17th, 1975, and we got out circa January 1976. And it was wow. my mother's uh, cunning and determination to uh, to save her kids. Now, how was, old were you? I was I was born literally months earlier. I don't even know my real birth date. Some, I mean, officially. I have a birth date, but it's kind of a made-up birth date. It's sort of close to what is believed to be the actual birth date, but there are no records left. My wow. wife, same thing. Mother-in-law, same thing. My own mother, same thing. And so among Cambodians, you'll see a lot of these weird uh, April 4th, uh, June 6th. <laughs> my mother was June 6th. Uh, my mother-in-law is January 1st. Are, are these just the to, dates it's, people it's, choose it's, if, they have to, if they have one to pick? It's easy to remember. I mean, it's like... <laughs> No, there's a no-brainer. You just it's the same number uh, wow. next to each other, right? But the year should be around the the year that that I was or that they were born. In my case, it was either late '74 or early '75. But um, the story is 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 really quite uh, dramatic. My parents were urban dwellers who were exactly the kinds of people that the Khmer Rouge who took over Cambodia, these these communist Maoist-inspired uh, guerrillas who were, some of them kids really, brainwashed to believe that agriculture was the only way to go and that they would return Cambodia to its past glory of growing multiple uh, rotations of rice, um, mm. would essentially empty the cities where they believe the scourge and parasite of, of the urban dweller feeding off of luxury goods and producing nothing were living. So my parents were, along with two million other Cambodians in Phnom Penh, sent to the countryside. And that's where they were until one day the uh, the village chief, commune chief of the Khmer Rouge said, uh, we've gotten word that Vietnamese citizens are to go back to Vietnam. They've, the Vietnamese Minister of Foreign Affairs has asked for them to return. And so we will, we will allow that. And of course, what did it mean? It meant you'd have to be tested in Vietnamese to prove that you were Vietnamese. Mm. There are no documents to prove that you're Vietnamese. Is it a language test? Language test. My father didn't speak a word of it. My mother had learned it as a kid and uh, with Vietnamese friends uh, going to markets and so on. And so she ends up uh, with my dad agreeing, saying, yeah, we let, put us down on the list. We're Vietnamese. Um, the timing of all that was pretty unbelievable. A few months later, if we had said that, we would have been killed because the, wow. the Khmer Rouge started their, their campaign against their Vietnamese communist brothers only months later, believing that, you know, these were the enemy too. So, it, the timing was unbelievable in that she decided uh, in a window of time when they were still okay with each other, the Khmer Rouge and the Vietnamese communists, that, you know, they would send back citizens. Now, she gets tested by the Khmer Rouge cadres. She gets tested. Uh, she passes that one because it's relatively easy. They're not asking too many questions. Uh, but then she's going to be tested by the Vietnamese communist cadres. And, and at that point, um, they, uh, they're asking her about, you know, oh, by the way, my father, who didn't speak Vietnamese, passes away three days into our journey. So he, oh, wow. he doesn't actually, you know, this is like a Sophie's Choice situation. He would, have, he would have been tested and then wouldn't have been able to speak. And there were cases like that that my mother witnessed where uh, husband and wife, husband doesn't speak Vietnamese because he's actually not Vietnamese. Yeah. The wife spoke Vietnamese. So she was told, you can go to Vietnam, but your husband has to stay or you can stay with him. And die together, basically. Wow. So, so how to how to essentially figure out that? But you know, it's almost like this mixed blessing, uh, terrible, bittersweet situation where 
from malnutrition, dysentery, and everything else that Khmer Rouge had done to, to the people, he passes away and isn't then an issue in that, what would we do if he were actually to be tested wow. and not pass? And um, so at that second test, the Vietnamese cadre bring her, uh, you know, ask her about, you know, why was your husband, why did your husband die? Because they're wondering, he must have been a big shot because if he died... Somebody, somebody wanted him dead or something, right? Because they're ah. still thinking rationally about how things work in <laughs> Cambodia. But people die all the time because they just were not getting enough food. And, um, and so she keeps to a story. She had given all the children new names, but her Vietnamese were so bad. Before the test, she told a, an auntie about it. And she said, oh, these are the new names. And the auntie said, but you've given all the boys girls names and all the girls boys <laughs> names. And she acts as a drill sergeant, uh, Vietnamese tutor to my mother for the next three days to help her improve her Vietnamese to the point where she does pass the exam. Wow. And we're then able to go to Vietnam, which was by then already, of course, communist. And so the next step was, how do we get out of Vietnam? Well, mom was very smart. She said, upon arrival, we're not Vietnamese, we're Cambodians. Ah. So that now you could leave Vietnam because there was no interest in keeping Vietnamese people, or rather keeping Cambodians in Vietnam per se. They, they wanted to keep Vietnamese people in the, in the Vietnamese socialist paradise, right? So, so they had to leave via boats as the boat people. Right, I've heard, I've I've heard. I don't know much, but I've heard about the boat people. Exactly, and that's where the whole story of Refugees International comes in, because there were all these Vietnamese boat people. So, I have a friend who's a um, fellow young global leader of the World Economic Forum. Uh, he's from New Zealand. Uh, well, he's a New Zealand citizen, but he's originally from Vietnam. He actually escaped, tried to escape multiple times with his father um, out of communist Vietnam. Uh, three attempts. They were always caught and sent back. Final attempt was he, they only have enough money f to, to bribe uh, one seat on the boat. And he, they get out there, they run out of fuel in three days, uh, food in four and, and, wa and, and water in, on the fifth day. And they're just, you know, floating in the middle of the South China Sea when a cruise ship comes by <sighs> and you think, oh my God, they're safe. But actually the passengers on the cruise ship just take out their cameras and take pictures of them and go on their merry way. Oh my gosh. So it takes, but, but there's a nice thing that happens in that the wake from the cruise ship pushes that boat into uh, shipping lanes. Then a <laughs> cargo ship comes by, does what the law of the sea requires in cases like this, rescues them. Two hours later, a storm comes by and destroys the uh, fishing vessel. My that, God. That the, 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 my friend was on, Mitchell Pham. Unbelievable story. This is like this the is old man happened. in the sea or something, Absolutely. just in terms of this happens and that happens. Exactly, exactly. So, so many people, stories like that. Thankfully, we, we actually got out of Vietnam through, a, a, you know, on a plane because as Cambodian citizens, we could leave legally. And as long as you paid your bribes and found somebody in the West that was, that said they were related to you. So in that case, another amazing story. If you have time for it. No, please. I, I, I would love it. And, and, and I just want to say one of the things that highlights for me is all these stories are so skin of their teeth and it makes you oh. realize how many people the story didn't go well for. Oh, absolutely. For every, for every person that, that ends up in our situation, God knows how many ended up dead, right? So yeah. there were 2 million d dead. 
out of a population of six, seven million Cambodians. So, wow. you know. Two million out of six or seven million. Exactly, exactly. Or, or, I mean, literally, you know, it's easy to think about it as a quarter of the people uh, ending up dead in a situation that, that was just untenable, uh, untenable. And so, you know, for us, uh, once we got to Vietnam, we had a relative, a, a distant uh, cousin in France. He didn't have the same last name. He was uh, a, a university student, um, so poor that I'm told he literally bathed <laughs> only using the tank water of his toilet. It was just <laughs> really starving student situation, and he's that, passed. That, that's more than that's <laughs> you're you're a now a college professor. I know. That's more than like you're starving. They're just eating instant ramen. They're not bathing yeah. in the toilet water. Exactly. So exactly. this is it's not a normal starving student. No, no, I guess not. <laughs> My students only don't have air conditioning when it gets hot. That's Right. That is that is the chief complaint, but right, but right. I, I'll say you know, cup noodles. <laughs> yes, and and so he's tasked with it, and he can't figure it out, and he he mopes around Paris and finds bumps into a Frenchman there named Bernard Guyadère, who I don't know for whatever reason decides, hey, I'm going to help this Cambodian family stuck in Vietnam that needs to get to France, and Bernard opens up the yellow pages, finds a. Um, a, a lady with the same last name as my mother and convinces her to sign papers saying she's related to her to say wow. that, you know, she'll be willing to sponsor or, you know, like they're related and therefore they're going to, they can sponsor as, as relatives and uh, papers get lost in the mail, but I guess Bernard <laughs> just forges her signature <laughs> and ends up uh, getting us to France in 1978. I mean, unbelievable wow. that we get there and then, we're supposed to actually go to the U.S. And you and then. you're a you're a baby at this time. I am. You're, by you're then, being held by yeah, your mother in, yeah, in a little blanket. Two, three years old. Okay. Uh, um, you know, really, really don't have any memories of that time. But but uh, my siblings were older, and and you know, I you know, it's a burden. I mean, having these kinds of memories, having these kinds of memories, probably make it much more difficult for you to then cope because yes. you, know, you have to actually you have something to remember suffering and. All like you know, my mom says that uh, she's passed away now, but she used to say that I was like one of these Ethiopian starving babies because it was like, you know, in Cambodia there was no, no breast milk. She had she had nothing left, um, and uh, just gruel that they gave with barely any any grains of rice in there. So my God. so she was able to. Um, no, we we were very fortunate. We 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 were able to get to Vietnam, then get to France, and then from France we're supposed to go actually to to the U.S. Um, I still have this letter from in French from the International Rescue Committee saying to my mother, "We have your plane tickets. Uh, we, we, we you're you're to appear at this office at this time to get them, and then you'll be flown to San Francisco, where I had an aunt there, um, and she decides for whatever strange reason I don't know." not to go. And she was tired, huh. I think, with all the traveling. Maybe she didn't want to be with her sister. I don't. I have no idea. But that kind of broke that relationship for, for a few years. And then in wow. 1985, the aunt visits France and uh, things get patched up. And she says, you know, you, you all have to come to America. And we end up in the U.S. in 1985. Wow. And where, what part of the country? October of 85, uh, land at SFO via JFK and hmm. end up at, uh, in Richmond, California, so Northern California. Grew up most of, uh, most of my childhood in Oakland. Okay. And, um, yeah, and, and unbelievably was able to adjust to the United States. Uh, went to Willard Junior High School, then Berkeley High School. 
Uh, and uh, at 16, graduated Berkeley High School, went to UC Berkeley, and then ended up doing a bunch of other things, World Bank, uh, Princeton Masters, PhD, and now I'm a professor. But I'm skipping through so much. If you want to hear it all, I'm happy to tell you. We've got I mean, plenty of time. It's also, we do have plenty of time. It's all incredibly fascinating. I can't imagine anything I, I'd, I'd rather hear about. <laughs> I mean, uh, uh, does it give you any uh, sense of... You know, refugees are such a divisive topic now and are, are seem to be one of the most uh, difficult problems facing the world and with more on the way given climate change and, right. and all the disruptions that we know are coming and the, the refugees that we believe will, you know, be caused by those events. Does it... Does it what perspective, if any, does it, does it give you on that issue? Well, I mean, the first thing that I see it as is I was a refugee. I'm. Yeah. I still think of myself as a refugee. You always have that, the the luggage packed next to your door to get out quick in case something. Happens. Do you it's, really? It's metaphorical. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But really, you have that mindset of like at any time things could change, and you better be ready to go quick because you know refugees aren't people who decide voluntarily to move. Right. The the definition. No one of would a do refugee, this just because they feel like yeah, it. Yeah. The definition of refugee is somebody who's forced to move because they have no other choice. And we are now at a, at a time in 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 history where we have more refugees than at any time since World War II, right? So World War II created all of these refugees, um, Jews from Europe who needed to move yes. from, 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 from Germany and who, uh, you know, those who had survived. Yeah. Uh, and, and now we face a situation where uh, we've, the production of refugees is at, at an all-time high. And we have to realize that there was a reason why, refu- you know, like we have a refugee convention because we understand that there's a responsibility to protect the most vulnerable people. These are people who are persecuted and who don't have any other choice. That's why they seek asylum and are labeled refugees and have certain rights, even if those rights aren't respected by a lot of countries. Like, you know, if a country says, well, we don't want any refugees well, what are you going to do to stop them? I mean, you're going to embarrass them, shame them, and so on. But there are countries that literally have argued that or say that we don't want anybody who's not Christian in our country. Well, now that's that's very strange to base it on religion alone as who yeah. you can let in. Yeah. And it's a, it's one of those problems that sort of makes you question your country's self-definition. It's very easy when there aren't refugees to say, okay, well, here's what a citizen is and here's who we're going to allow in and who we're not going to allow in. But then when you have millions of people at your doorstep and spilling over the threshold because the pressure of, of movement is so high, you're forced to grapple with that. And you're forced to say, well, does my do my values uh, may mean I have to take care of these people or not? Like, what are my values in that situation and am I going to live up to them, I think? Yeah. And as well, we understand the United States to be a nation that was created essentially from, I mean, aside, of course, from Native Americans who were here before everybody else, but is a nation of, of immigrants and refugees, people who were essentially not uh, welcomed where they were originally, yeah. right? So of the Protestant faith, for example, needing to find a new place to worship, uh, freedoms that they didn't have where they lived, and who essentially, I mean, if you think about it, America is has that origin story that comes from people who move, maybe some of them were uh, the craziest ones who were m- the most daring, who were willing to take ships across oceans to unknown places. But that's that's 
part of the fabric of, of that's the fabric essentially of this country. And we shouldn't forget the fact that now that, you know, we're all here and settled and fine and maybe multi-generationally in that we don't yeah. realize the history of this country and the responsibility essentially of fulfilling the promises we've made to to the world in terms of um, yeah. accepting our share. Now, I'm not saying open the borders and let everybody in and so on, but but you know, if you think about uh, the, the the very few times that the U.S. has acted in a way that is favorable to refugees, it was probably you know after Jimmy Carter decided that he was going to send the Seventh Fleet. So Refugees International, that organization I'm on the board of, um, their origin story is they had a uh, Joan Baez uh, and the uh, Sue Morton, the founder of Refugees International, had a a candlelight vigil at the uh, Lincoln Memorial, and they walked to the fence of the White House. And legend has it. Jimmy Carter walks out of the White House and tells them, I cannot let your people die and instructs the seventh, it says, you know, he's, he basically it's from there that the seventh fleet Navy of the United States goes and then is, 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 is tasked with rescuing the boat people who oh. couldn't, who, who would have essentially been kept, uh, who would have been sent from place to place. There, there've been uh, Vietnamese refugees in Hong Kong, who were there for decades, stuck there, and and uh, those are they're still relatively lucky to the ones who die to sharks and and sinkings of of, of those fishing boats that yeah. that I talked about earlier. So so really, that's the only time that the U.S. seems to have acted very honorably about refugees. Even during World War II, one of the biggest stories or the the most difficult examples is the is the St. Louis. Uh, it was a ship that had uh, Jews that were sent to the, you know, were looking for a place for asylum, came to the U.S. and were told that they didn't have a, you know, they couldn't dock there, sent to Nova Scotia, also couldn't dock there, then returned to Germany where most of the, uh, where many members of that uh, uh, passengers were killed in, uh, under uh, the Nazis, right? I've never so, heard that story. So, so yeah, so there's a, you can get a picture of that ship. In fact, uh, the head of uh, Refugees International, the president, uh, Eric Schwartz, keeps a picture of that ship as a reminder of what it means when you turn away people. Because under in World War II, when people needed refuge, the United States was like, nope, 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 you're not coming in. And people died as a result. Yeah. Um, and now you're seeing that, you know, across the Mediterranean, where um, where you know you have people who are trying to reach European shores, and um, you know they're dying, uh, Syrian boys dying on the beach, drowned to death, etc. These should be reminders of the price that people are willing to pay in order to find freedom, in order to be safe, yeah. and that that we didn't, you know, America's. Part of our history is that we're a nation of immigrants and that we let the refugees in and that we, you know, we're the heroes of World War II, the Holo you know, that right. Germany was committing the Holocaust and we rescued so many of those people. But we forget that it was a battle and a struggle at that time as well and that people didn't, there oh. were people who didn't want to, there were people who weren't let in and there were other people who stood up and said, we are going to be humanitarian and, and save our fellow humans this way and that that's the choice we have again today. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it, I mean, obviously it's, it's complex. There, 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 there are decisions that have to be made with respect to, uh, you know, people who are already in the country, what to, what to do with those who, who aren't uh, documented and whether we, 
we have a responsibility to, just, you know, I mean, there's there's going to be a lot of arguments. It's messy. It's that. not going to be it's easy. Not cl- it's not easy. But you know, if you had an immigration system, a, a legal system that that was effective, where if you're told, hey, we reviewed your asylum case, you don't have a case, then you you really should leave at that point. I mean, there mm. there's not there shouldn't be a situation where. I know everybody gets just come and go and whatever, right? I mean, there yeah. there are laws, but but insofar as you know, then we could actually give people a fair shake with respect to you know listening to their cases. If you expect immigration judges to listen to a minimum number of hundreds of cases per year, they're basically well, factory workers at that point yes, where they that, have to process the all these cases. That's the situation now. I mean, we did a segment on that for Adam Ruins Everything about about the incredible pressure on the immigration courts and the the mass the mass trials that they have and all of that. I, I'm just curious before we move on and talk about your actual work, which is yeah. part of what we, we prepared. We have all these notes about yeah, what yeah. we're going to discuss, but this is also fascinating and wonderful. I'm just curious about what it was like for your, for your mother, because you talk about yourself, you know, being lucky to adjust and, and that to go from such a horrific, you know, a dangerous situation to being in the United States and, and making a life there must yeah. have, must have really been something. Well, for her, it was, it was like basically taking off from one country that she knew to go to another, adjusting. I mean, by the time, you know, she gets to France, she's the reason why she probably decided not to go to the U.S. was pure exhaustion. My sister was sick. Um, There was really not a a rush to like, oh, let's just, again, take another plane and go uh, further. Um, I mean, look, she fell into a depression when we lived in France where Mm. she was institutionalized. I remember Mm. visiting her. It was tough. I had to live with a foster family, uh, for two years. Um, because frankly, and as did my, uh, one of my sisters, because we, it was too difficult for, 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 uh, my mother to take care of all the kids, especially the younger ones. And so it was hard, but you know, she, the, the thing that's amazing about her is that she always believed that, that even though she herself had a fourth grade education, she believed that her, all her children should have an education. She was willing to uh, forego income in order to invest in an education. Um, so when, when I went to Berkeley, for example, she was willing, you know, it was fine. You don't, don't worry about finding work. You know, there wasn't that pressure of like, hey, you got to go out and get money as soon as possible because we need more money. And, you know, part of it is there was a, a there's a, a social welfare system that, that did help. Uh, there were Cal grants that allowed me to go to Berkeley basically yeah. without any loans, Pell grants, Cal grants. I mean, living at home, of course, saved a lot of money. Uh, when I initially got... Uh, rejected from Berkeley, but got into UCLA uh, out of high school. I thought, oh my God, how am I? I can't do this. Like the reality was, at six, at sixteen, I couldn't imagine. Dri- I didn't have a driver's license. I didn't yeah. have a car. I couldn't imagine coming <laughs> down to LA and going to UCLA. So I thought, oh, the only option would be I'll go to community college and transfer, like my sister had. And then I'd met a guy who, um, at a meeting of Southeast Asians at UC Berkeley, who said, oh, my name's Bob, uh, here's my number, I work in admissions. And I thought, oh, okay, whatever, yeah, I'll keep this. And then when I got rejected, I remembered Bob, and I called <laughs> Bob up, and he met with me. Uh, we worked on a letter of appeal together, and a few weeks later, um, I, got, I got a reversal wow. of decision. And then a couple of years later, I found out that Bob um, 
was uh, became the uh, director of admissions at UC Berkeley. Wow. So the guy knew everything about the inside. <laughs> he just wasn't yet the director at that point. I mean, it's just unbelievable how fortunate I've been and yes. how many good Samaritans along the way from the auntie in the uh, pre-testing area at the border with Vietnam to, you know, uh, Bob, who... Um, who, who was willing, you know, anything could have happened. I could have called him after um, being rejected, maybe, you know, f- not left a voicemail, not You could have missed the him. bus to that meeting of Southeast Asians. Absolutely. And I can't believe that it all worked out. So so really it's, it's just, it's luck, but also, you know, just having the, uh, getting, trying when I could have said, you know what, I'll just go to community college. I don't want to, I don't want to yeah. go back into this decision or, or, or appeal it. And my mother was in that way, I believe, uh, somebody who, who, who had hope for a better life for her kids. Uh, in fact, in the, in the documentary that was made about uh, our family story. Of course uh, a documentary was made about your family story. I was it's about only to, like, a minor documentary <laughs> yeah, that was made on, out of Singapore, <laughs> Channel News Asia did it. This is the best story I've ever, I'm riveted. <laughs> I'm, si- I'm sitting here. Again, this is not what we came to talk about, no, but I'm just not, like, I, I, know, every hey, detail. <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to share. And, you know, and she had, I had done these recordings of her because I had interviewed her for the New York Times for a uh, lives page story, which is like on the Sunday magazine, the last page, where sometimes it's typically a first-person story. I know these stories, yes. Exactly. So I had dreamt of doing one where she would tell me the story of our family's escape, and it wouldn't be clear our, of our relationship until the end of the of the story. Mm. So that hey, it's the mother, it's the son talking to the mother about their their entire family's escape. Good pitch. And so we 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 did it on the thirtieth anniversary of the fall of Phnom Penh, April seventeenth, two thousand five. And then the documentary filmmaker who watched my TED talk uh, approached me and said, hey, would you, would you like to make a documentary? And then I, I, she had passed away six months after my TED talk in 2009. So I said, well, mom's passed away, but I have these tapes. And so in the places where she would have appeared, there's animation of her, uh, of, oh. of the scenes, and then uh, her speaking, and then subtitles explaining what, uh, translating what she says. And, and in, in it, she says at the end something to the effect of like, you may not be as, as powerful as others, but you were just as intellectually capable of her kids. And what she meant by that was, oh, yeah, we're, we're not, you know, we're not, you know, uh, highfalutin politicians or billionaires or anything like that. But we, 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 we didn't end up being stupid and unable to fend for ourselves. And <laughs> she, was, she was happy that, that we could, we could uh, make a life for ourselves. I mean, to go from the killing fields of Cambodia to being a, a professor at a college here in California is incredible. Well, anything can happen. I, I, you know, I, I'm a believer in that. Of course, I'd be remiss in saying, you know, it happens to everybody. Of course not. The myth of the model minority. I don't want to. Feed of course, into and I that. don't, and I yeah. don't mean that to be. That's you know, I hate the. Well, that's the American dream right there because right. it's because it's not. That's right. not the life that. Uh, that that we aspire for Americans to have, or that we should expect of each other, exactly. but it's but the story's remarkable, and it's like interviewing only the winners of the lottery. Yes, if you do that. Well, guess what? You'll think that playing the lottery means you'll win the lottery. Well, you do have to play the lottery, but most people lose. Yes, and that's who doesn't get interviewed. Selecting on the dependent variable, as as the statisticians yes. would say, ends up causing bias. Where you think, oh, look. Everybody I love, ends up these ends up with these success stories. Well, no, 
Most yes. don't. It's the it's the story of looking at the. I love this this anecdote about you know when they would watch the plane. I forget which war this this story is about, or if it's even true. When they would watch the planes come back, you know that were getting shot down, and they would look at where the bullet holes were, and they said, "Oh well, that's you know those are the." Uh, uh, the, the, those, those are the places the planes are getting shot. So they put more armor there. Right. <laughs> but then the real problem was, no, those are the planes that got shot in those places and they didn't crash. It's all the other places that you get shot that would kill you. You know, <laughs> that if you just look at the survivors, yeah, you, exactly. you don't really understand You'd the true story. You'd have to go pull up the uh, crash plane to figure out where they get <laughs> but they can get shot anywhere. And, uh, the most vulnerable areas would be the yeah. places to <laughs> fortify. Well, let's actually talk about yeah. your work right, right after this. We'll take a really quick break. Sure. We'll be right back with more support. Here. As a factually listener, you're probably aware of my unwavering commitment to online privacy. Well, Delete Me has been an indispensable tool for me for many years, long before they even started advertising on this show. I've been using their wonderful service. In today's digital landscape, you know, it's alarmingly easy for data brokers to traffic your personal information online. In fact, I would almost guarantee that your personal information is on multiple data broker sites on the internet right now. It's not even the dark web, it's the regular web. These data brokers may be peddling and exchanging your name, phone number, and home address, all without your knowledge. And trying to locate and remove all this data yourself can feel like an impossible task because there can be dozens of these sites. But that is what Delete Me does for you. Delete Me's team of experts scours the depths and the breadth of the internet to locate and remove your personal data. Within just seven days, you'll receive a comprehensive report detailing their findings and what they have removed. It can be hard to believe, but approximately 41% of Americans find themselves vulnerable to various forms of online harassment, and this means doxing, scams, and even identity theft, all of which pose significant threats to your financial security and could potentially derail career opportunities. I mean, I used to get weird people calling my cell phone all hours of the day or night until I signed up for Delete Me and it cut it right out. So if you want to safeguard yourself like that and live with the peace of mind that experts are hunting down and removing your personal information every three months, then check out Delete Me. Go to joindeleteme.com slash Adam and get 20% off for all consumer plans with the code Adam. That's joindeleteme.com slash Adam. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep. The application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. A new year is a new chance to focus on you. You're probably already picturing yourself struggling at the gym, but not all self-help has to mean suffering. Squeeze.com is making it easier than ever to elevate your wellness by delivering a juice cleanse right to your doorstep. 
It's the easiest juice cleanse you'll ever do that may aid in weight loss, eliminating bloating, clearing your skin, boosting your energy levels, improving sleep, and breaking bad eating habits. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at squeezed.com. So, Paul, uh, let's talk about what you actually do for a living. Yeah, um, let's do that. So, you're a professor at Occidental College, correct? I am. You study international aid, international development. I do, in a department called Diplomacy and World Affairs, probably the only one with that particular title, but it's basically international relations. Great. So th- this is this is a subject that I know very little about, but I've always had the curiosity in the back of my head because you hear in the news, you know, uh, oh, you know, the politicians are debating we give such and such an amount of aid to foreign nations. It's a large percentage of GDP, all things considered. I mean, not enormous, but, you know, it is a fair amount. Um, and, uh, you know, they're debating about whether or not we should. And then we often continue, you know, to, I, I, I think those amounts are slashed sometimes, but we still do pay out large amounts of money. And even as someone who is like, you know, generally I try to think of myself as a selfless person and I want to help out those in need. I still have never quite understood like the, the rationale for why the American system, which, you know, often seems very self-centered would feel it's important to do that. And so what is the, what is the basis for that? Diplomatically, why why do we make these payments? Right. So after World War II, uh, we realized that the international order would be better if we were able to help the countries that we were allied with that uh, uh, you know that that had lost a war, or rather that that we we had helped to essentially come out of World War II victorious. Um, uh, recover, right? Because if they didn't recover, they might turn into communist countries, right? Mm-hmm. So the Iron Curtain was falling, and now it was you choose to either be communist with the Soviet Union or capitalist with the West. And so the rationale was, how do we ensure a world on the uh, Western side that isn't going to fall into the clutch of communism? And the answer was to initiate programs like the uh, Marshall Plan, um, and others in Asia and in Latin America that would essentially uh, send money to those countries so that they would ha- so that they would be able to uh, have their economies recover uh, so that they have enough money to to buy it. It's selfish, you know. Typically, American goods and oftentimes cigarettes, uh, <laughs> but basically to 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 give them the money that they would then use to then you know. Uh, rebuild their economies uh, and and at the same time uh, help our economy because it would create more demand for what we export, right? So we were relatively undamaged, right? I mean, you know, except for Pearl Harbor, there yeah. was nothing, no incursion into the U.S. Uh, and so uh, our productive capacity was 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 good. We were we were able to to um, uh, to to make things, and those countries needed help to rebuild their economies. And so the system that was created after World War II was was essentially one where liberalism, where the market is essentially baked into uh, the systems of these countries, where they, it's you know it's there's going to be a government intervention, but every mostly based on the, on market principles. So prices will determine where things should, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, supply and demand uh, ought to be. But uh, but but generally, uh, you know, they wouldn't turn into communist countries, which was our biggest fear because these, these they were now, we were, we were now 
you know, in a cold war. Liberalism meaning, in this case, market economies and democracies very broadly? Right. And I, I, and I wouldn't even stretch it to what we now understand liberalism to be. And certainly it wasn't, uh, you know, liberalism in the sense of conservatives and liberals yeah, no, today. Not that. Yeah. But liberal, uh, embedded liberalism in, in the sense of, of, of baking in uh, the market uh, as, as, as a basis for how countries function so that they wouldn't simply say, oh, it's better to be completely, you know, command-driven, for example. And, and you had variations. You had countries like, uh, you know, Nordic countries that were social welfare democracies, so they believed in taxing more in order to uh, obtain, uh, you know, higher benefits from those tax revenues for their people. And then you had other, you know, less, uh, less uh, uh, social welfare-driven countries. Of course, the U.S. is the, uh, the, the extreme other side, which would be the example of a country that, you know, didn't, that still is debating the issue of health insurance for its people, whether <laughs> right. they ought to have that or whether <laughs> they should simply go to the emergency room and cost a bundle. And you know what? Uh, everybody needs to pay for their own way. But um, but for most countries in Europe, uh, I think those decisions were were made long before. In terms of well, you know, there are certain responsibilities we have. France is equality, fraternity, um, liberty, and so th they understood that equality was more important than simply saying, "Hey, level the playing field." But then, if you end up a loser, that's that's okay. So, are we essentially? Is this? Payments that are being made in order to keep these countries on the American team, or is are we paying for stability? What is the what is the rationale here? What effects are are these amounts having? Yes. Uh, and the Marshall Plan, of course, that's the only one I heard about in school. But. Right. So, I mean, uh, you know, studies of foreign aid have shown, uh, in terms of uh, why the U.S. gives foreign aid. Uh, these days, or at least in the recent past, ha have been totally linked to patterns of voting at the UN. If a country votes with the United States, it gets more <laughs> aid. Guess what? That's because we want them to be on our side. Literally, that the Team USA aspect of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, if if a country consistently opposes the US, you can probably predict they're not going to get money from the U.S. or as much money as a country that, that supports the U.S. position at the U.N. I mean, you know, other aspects of aid have got to do with very fairly selfish things. The former uh, U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development Administrator Brian Atwood, I think, once testified before Congress that 84 cents of every dollar returns to the U.S. from USAID money, uh, something I think one should probably not be totally proud of, given that it's like giving a dollar and saying, hey, I, I'm expecting 84 cents back from that dollar <laughs> right. because we're going to force you to fly American uh, airlines only. We're going to force you to buy uh, or to uh, use consultants who are U.S. citizens or you have to you know, use contractors who are American companies, and, and that's how the money returns. I guess the only way Congress might support more foreign aid is if you could actually show that more than a dollar came back for every dollar that was spent. <laughs> but but this is so yeah the the United States would would put you know this money comes with conditions that that they have to agree to certain terms. Well, a lot of it if it's uh, if it's bilateral, yes, the the conditions would be tied aid in terms of okay you have to spend the money with American contractors or American, uh, you have to fly American, you have to do these things so that, so that it's, it, it helps the United States. Japan's the same thing. You know, Japanese foreign aid requires that Japanese consultants be used 
And so it, it really limits, in that sense, the effectiveness of bilateral aid, right? So when two countries agree to, okay, I'm going to give you this, and but then I'm going to put all these conditions on that, that's, that's obviously uh, more difficult to justify competitively than to say, well, we just, we want you to competitively bid this, but you don't have to use an American company. You can mm. use an international bidder, for example. And that tends to happen, uh, that's typically the rule for um, the World Bank, for example, the multilateral uh, in, in, international organizations, international banks that that are uh, in you know, that are doing development work, they're not wedded to like you have to do American only. No, they're they're not owned by the right. U.S. They have uh, members um, on their board that's the United States, but you know, in that sense, it's more. I think uh, evenly spread and uh, sensible in, in terms of approach. But then there's something else with the World Bank and the IMF and so on in, in the way they approach development or approach um, loans to countries. And it's the you know much much uh, ballyhooed uh, structural adjustment programs that that are required. So you know the, if a country is in a financial crisis, the IMF's mm. approach will be. You're in a financial crisis it, because you spent too much money. You, yeah. you, 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 you didn't raise enough money, you didn't tax enough, and then you spent too much, so now you need to go on a financial diet. Yeah, and we're the austerity program. Right, we'll give you a loan, but you'll have to agree to all these conditions. And because the World Bank and the IMF are the lenders of last resort, nobody else, if you can't get money from them, nobody else will lend money to you. So you literally, you're, you're at the very end of the line in terms of, if you don't agree to this, there really isn't anybody else out there who's oh. who's going to be willing to put up the money. Um, so that's that has that's certainly something you know with structural adjustment with the Washington consensus where it, these were um, a set of ten policies that 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 Washington, including the World Bank, the IMF, wanted countries to. Uh, accept whenever they, you know, follow, took money, so they'd they'd have to like liberalize their markets and mm -hmm. and you know, deregulate and do all these things that that privatize, for example, which you know, it's, to some extent makes sense. But you know, taking a cookie cutter approach, you know, when, when if a country doesn't have enough regulation because it doesn't have enough state capacity to say you need to deregulate further is like. You know, doesn't make any sense. That's like, yeah. you know, you need to build up a state in order to be able to then deregulate <laughs> it if that's what you want to do. You can't just begin with the assumption that every country, uh, the, you know, the problem is always the same and the solution is always the same. But, you know, there have been instances with the IMF where somebody was too lazy to apparently write a new document and instead just went in and searched Jeez. and replaced the name of a country and then forgot somehow to replace the name somewhere else in the document, which then led to huge embarrassment about like, how the This hell really you, happened? This, this is a story that uh, when I worked at the World Bank, we talked about. And of course, you know, I mean, these are institutions. They work in ways that are very strange and sometimes arcane. Yes. I mean, even the culture of the World Bank and the IMF is totally different. The folks at the IMF apparently all wear the same suits and carry this leather attache that they're told to, that, that standard issue, while the bank was much more of a, you know, anybody can speak in the meeting because there's not this hierarchy of like, only mm. the mission leader will be telling uh, the government things. So it's, uh, it's, it's crazy stuff like culture of, of bureaucracies. Well, let's, let, let's zoom out a little bit. For, for the average American, when they hear about this kind of aid, the way that they think about it, 
what are the biggest misconceptions that you think people have about it that we need to correct about what it is and why it's done? Well, so I think people think of foreign aid as a, some people certainly think as a waste of money. Like, oh, it's just like an international welfare system. We're just going to subsidize the welfare queen, quote unquote, of the world. And that's really, I think, I think that approach is, it does a disservice. First of all, you, you, if you think about countries that need foreign aid, what, what's, what's going on is they're less developed, right? So they, they are not at a level of development. And of course, you know, when I say developing, developed, less developed, et cetera, the truth is- Yeah, what do we mean by that? It's, it's, it's like talking about wine in terms of white and red wine. That, that, you know, that's, that's, that's not an- It's not there, technical. There, there are at least 200 varieties of, de- of countries that are, you know, in the sense of, you know, more developed than others, and and it's very difficult. And a lot to, of different ways you can measure them. Exactly, based on. it's just that we don't have two hundred terms to characterize every different kind of country. Uh, you look at their you know per capita GDP, their gross develop, uh, uh, domestic product, for example, and to, and then from there you maybe think, oh yeah, they they reach three thousand dollars per person, so yeah. they're you know getting well, to middle income or something lower middle income. And, and there are different axes. It's the sort of thing where when you travel from you know the U. To somewhere else, you're like, well, our houses are nicer, but man, they have got really nice trains here. It's exactly. a, that's a very stupid example, but yeah. there's not just one axis on which we're measuring. Right. Well, how I mean, developed like, these Norway may are. not have as many billionaires, but they probably have fewer poor people, and yeah. you know, everybody gets education and healthcare. So these are choices that countries make in terms of their political economy. You know, how much how much government intervention they want, and 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 how much aid. Will play a role in, in their in their country, and and of course, you know, for a lot of a lot of the developing world, um, the approach too often is, hey, we have the answer because we are the experts, and of course, you don't know anything unless you are local, <laughs> and the locals have the local knowledge and the expertise, and it, too yeah. often they, you know, people just forget that and ignore the locals and think come in, fly in with their plans already pre-made. But, but you were saying it's it's this is not just welfare. What what is it? It's instead? not just welfare. It's it's really a preventive for problems down the road. So if you think about, you know, Afghanistan, for example, and and how Afghanistan became the host country for Al Qaeda, if we hadn't let Afghanistan become a a, a failed state so that, you know, um, the Taliban would host Al Qaeda, uh, if 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 more had been done earlier, maybe there would have been uh, a base for Al Qaeda that could have then planned what happened in ni- on nine eleven, right? So they, so 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 th- you have to think about it. Uh, oh, how many trillions of dollars that we spend to essentially clean up the mess after nine eleven? Right. Uh, att- obviously, invade Afghanistan, attack Iraq, and invade Iraq, and all these things. And, yeah, and, this this place was the sandbox of the world that every other major power was coming in and kicking the castles over every couple decades. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, where empires die. Yeah, is what uh, Afghanistan often is referred to, and and that's and that's and that's the kind of investment I think that 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 makes a lot of sense when you think about you know what what would happen if you didn't um, if you don't spend a little bit of money now in order to like. You know the people who understand the price of war are the military, and you, you won't find a general who will say, "Ah, oh, it's a waste of money to spend on, money on the State Department." No, uh. they want the State Department, USAID, to get more money so that they can help countries and prevent 
another catastrophe in which you know American soldiers have to pay with their lives because it's it's a matter of so the goal is to keep these places stable rather than allowing them to sort of fall into instability and then that's when you need to send American soldiers right I mean of course there are some scholars who argue that well sometimes if they fail too much even Al Qaeda won't go there because they won't have <laughs> electricity and internet so maybe we should just let them go completely the other way but that's that's taking too much of a risk that would be you know some Somalia, that would be places where, uh, you know, for... for, for Doesn't seem like a good strategy. <laughs> no, it seems like a very perverted view of the world where, you know, if 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 the man's down, kick him further so that they, they yeah. can't at all get up that way and, and strike you. Um, I, I, think, I think we need to understand it in terms of the costs and benefits and how, you know, the U.S., you were saying earlier that we spend a lot of money on foreign aid. Actually, we don't do nearly as much as as Nordic countries do. They mm. they dedicate like 0.7% of their GDP. This is like the agreed upon target, and we are nowhere near that. How I much mean, do we? Yeah, I mean, we 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 are a fraction of that. Okay. And, and and every time we do, it's like people freak out, thinking like, oh my God, we're wasting, uh, you know, uh, all of our money on on this stupid foreign aid that doesn't do anything. Well, you know, when you think when you hear. Uh, President Trump talking about, oh, we need to cut aid to Central American countries because they're sending, uh, you know, there are too many refugees or there are too many migrants coming from those countries. By doing that, you're going to make the problem worse yeah. because you're further destabilizing those countries and you're stopping the only thing now that is preventing even more people from ending up on the U.S. border. It's very interesting, though, because it sounds like you're making the argument that our reasons for, you know, uh, sending this aid uh, can be totally cynical, that we're trying to, you know, save money and save American lives in the long run, and that's a good thing. But I also hear you bring in a lot of criticism of AIDS, of aid practices as you're bringing them up. And, and I know that I think there are plenty of people who would argue that, like, for the U.S. to treat the world as a place that it's going to try to arrange for its, uh, you know, own safety and stability is not great. And I know there are plenty of stories throughout global history where the U.S.'s involvement in trying to, you know, say, oh, we need to keep a place like Afghanistan stable. We need to make sure a war doesn't break out there. So we're going to send aid to this government. A lot of those stories end Poorly, so oh yes, no, and and of course you you frequently have, I mean you you know, you only need to look at uh, you know confessions of an economic hitman to understand that yeah there are cases. There what are is many, confessions uh, of an economic hitman? Well, is it the title of something, or yes. is that your is that your no, forthcoming no, no, no. memoir? It's, no, it's it's a it's a book uh, in which uh, you know the author details essentially. An entire set of circumstances by which you know why do countries covet oil? They send in their corporations, and then when the leaders of those countries don't follow what the U.S. say, they send in the military to essentially take over. A kind of narrative of what mm. happened in Iraq and Afghanistan. Pretty, you know, I, you know, it's it's a pretty cynical view of, of things, but it's pro. It's got some grains of truth with respect to, you know. Were you know the map of Iraq was apparently being cut up and 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 U.S. oil companies were were being asked which which part would you like which block of yes. of Iraq would you like and and that's that that is the kind of cynicism um, uh, that uh, you know is validated in the yes. sense of like we discover that you know Vice President Dick Cheney was apparently having these these meetings with oil executives trying to do these things and, and then you have to be you have to wonder like how could this be well 
He was the CEO of Halliburton. So, you know, there's there's definitely interest from, uh, you know, companies that are in oil and energy and, and in, in its extraction yeah. in, in furthering their agenda in that sense. Is it possible for <laughs> American interests and humanitarian interests in this area to coincide for, you know, us to give aid to a nation, both because it's helpful for us geopolitically and in a way that actually benefits the people who need our help? Because to some degree, I'm not going to say the American government is altruistic in this department, uh, nor do I think they need to be to do it. But as a human, I like to think I'm altruistic. And if there are people suffering somewhere and the careful application of American dollars can solve that, you know, for not too much money, you know, I'd like to do so. Hey, I donate money to the Against Malaria Foundation because I'm told that, you know, bed nets are helpful in saving lives and, you know, increasing economic prosperity. So is there a, uh, is, is there a world where those two things can dovetail or are we always talking about American interests versus what the people no, there and, want. And look, I, I think I think that for so much of of the um, foreign aid picture, the 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 bed nets, the uh, human development intervention, the the areas where it's not like oh we're going to build for you a stadium or a bridge or a road or a presidential palace, hint hint China essentially is doing <laughs> these things. Uh, yeah, there's nothing to point to, but. There are people who are alive as a result. There are people who are able to get an education and who are able to, you know, fulfill more of their lives. And as a and as a result, whether they see favorably the U.S. because hey, we, uh, you know, helped uh, more schools to operate, or we um, had more health clinics in countries that needed them, that I think is a huge, uh, you know, soft power. In other words, you know, let's not go in with the guns. Let's go in with with the uh, the positive uh, resources, human, financial, and so on that that can bring up countries that uh, that might otherwise see the U.S. as you know this imperial uh, place that that doesn't care about them. If you you know bring Voice of America or Radio Free Asia to, to a people that that otherwise have no access to news other than from their own government, which is always, of course, has to be converted into whoever's being praised is actually evil and whoever is being criticized is actually good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, these are things that are valuable. Letting people determine their own their own fates and 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 having agency. I mean. That's that's I think something that that we ought to have more of. So yes, it's possible <laughs> there is there is aid. But yeah, I am a critic of you know of the overall aid dependence picture in places. Aid like dependence. Cam- yeah, like the, in Cambodia, you were going to say right. So, so my, tell me about my that. My first book was uh, is called Aid Dependence in Cambodia: How Foreign Assistance Undermines Democracy, and it's it's really about the 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 case of one country that received. Uh, for decade, uh, decades, really, so much foreign aid that it became a situation where for every dollar the Cambodian government spent from its budget, it received something like 94.3 cents uh, for the period of 2000 to 2008 or so. And that's not even the worst of it. I mean, you've got countries uh, like Liberia, where it's a dollar uh, from the budget they're spent, $7.71 in foreign aid, you, yes, what? More, yeah, Beca- so, so it's not like, the same dollar, right? So you know, the government <laughs> okay. says that we have very little money; we're just spending this much, versus donors coming in and flooding the place with with their dollars. And oh, and, do, do, doing direct aid and spending well, that much aid projects or yes. things that that essentially represent multiples of the of the budget of that country because the the entire aid 
aid uh, you know commitment to that country is is massive, right? So so um, so situations like that where those countries then are disincentivized to think about development as the responsibility of right. of, the, of the government and instead you know puts it on the the donors and then people where there's democracy or supposed to be democracy are not thinking you know they they pay taxes but then you know the government doesn't really want that much in tax revenue because it's more interested in the foreign aid and then the accountability mechanism of like, hey, Washington D.C. it's it's uh, taxation without representation, and my argument in those cases of over-dependent countries is uh, no taxation means no representation. So if you're not taking huh, money from yeah. people, then they're not going to feel like they're going to be able to ask their government to do things for them. So um, I, yeah, I'm imagining if here in the U.S., you know, instead of you know my roads, schools, airports being you know monitored and funded by the government, if seven out of eight of those things were actually run by the Red Cross and you know China's sending humanitarian workers to help repair the highways and everything, yeah, yeah well, the the government itself would atrophy because it would do less and people would expect it to do less. And they're like, oh yeah, no, the Europeans and the and the other people from overseas are going are handling that. For us, but then you don't have any accountability over those people. I can't vote right. and put a new Red Cross leader in if I don't like where they put the highway. Right, or or uh, you know, my you, metaphor makes no sense. Yeah, but you no, know, <laughs> and, and look, the, the, you know, uh, Cambodia was talking about seventy percent of its roads and bridges were built by China. So uh, do you mean? Out of ten roads and bridges in Cambodia, seven of them were Chinese built. So, who are you wow. really paying homage to when you say thank you? You're saying thank you to China, and 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 then it's built, of course, by Chinese workers who are brought in. So there's there's little work for Cambodians who are you know day laborers or willing to do that work because they they bring in their teams. They work twenty four hours a day in like three different shifts. And then they produce it as quickly as they can. I, I argue it's a win-win-win win for China because um, they have a lot of money right now, right? So they, yeah. they've got all this, all you know, uh, all, all these trillions of dollars, and so they they need to do something with them. But they're not going to give it away. They're going to make a loan for it. So then you create a loan, and then you built the bridge, or you built the dam, or whatnot, and then you end up saying, well, you can't pay for it. So we'll do a debt equity swap. We'll take over the port, for example, that, that we built for you for 99 years, which is the same amount of time Hong Kong was handed over to China. And then <laughs> uh, you know, our workers, there's not going to be a tender process where there's going to be bidding for it because it'll be all in-house. Or if there is one, it'll only be Chinese companies. And then the workers will all come from China, so they, it's like, wow, great. And then you know, there's a problem of uh, of uh, too many men in China due to uh, gender uh, selection mm -hmm. there. So uh, if the if the men actually find a spouse in Cambodia, for example, it's another personal win for the Chinese who end up working right. in Cambodia. Um, you know, th this is this is the the kind of dilemma that we're now looking at. I mean, the the foreign aid picture has been eclipsed now by Chinese money that is uh, in the form of the Belt Road Initiative. This trillion. I've heard dollars. about this. I, I don't really know. It's like on the part of the page of the New York Times, I I can't quite understand. Uh, so, or you know, I'm doing my best. I try to read it, but uh, please please tell me what the heck is the Belt and Road Initiative? Well, the Belt and Road Initiative is China's going global with a trillion dollars essentially saying, hey, we're going to help connect 
everybody to China, and especially those who need it most. So Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, you know, Malaysia, they're getting investments from, from and, and um, loans from China to build uh, roads, infrastructure, um, and, and, and uh, ports, and so on. Uh, to essentially, uh, you know, commercialize those countries. So, you know, now you can export stuff more easily. But, you know, there's also an aspect of it where it's military uh, in nature. Why are you building a port that appears to be uh, capable, like an airport that appears to be capable of landing a 747 when, you know, the country's main airport can't even do that? So are you expecting a Chinese naval sh- uh, airplane to land there. Um, and, you know, is, is this going to eventually become like a secret base of military, naval base of China, <laughs> for example? And, and they, and they want to do that. They want to circle around India because they know that the future competitor for China isn't going to be the United States. It's going to be India. India has the population to essentially rival China eventually. And so, you know, um, the sooner they get Essentially, around India, in terms of uh, na- uh, in terms of military presence, the sooner they'll have a leg up on you know, ch- uh, India. You're going to be surrounded basi- basically by our military. Wow! So this is the way that China is doing international development in order to, in a similar way, do what the what the U.S. is doing to to spend money in these places, tie these countries more closely to it. Hopefully, maybe also develop them, but then also there's a degree to which it's self-interested. Is, is oh, absolutely, and I think to some extent it's it's almost a little too self-interested, especially the aspect of it that's that's uh, you know loans that are not concessional in nature. There, it's, it's closer to commercial loans. Uh, of course, there's going to be some su- sweetener, but you know if you, if I say I'm going to build for you a two billion dollar stadium. And then what I built for you is a $1 billion stadium and I loaned you $2 billion for it. What happened to the other billion dollars? Well, right. I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. did you waste uh, two billion, you know, an extra billion dollars on something that you didn't have to waste the money on? Or is it in fact, you know, half of it is going to go into the pockets of the officials in Cambodia, for example. And so that's that's the sweetener. That's yeah. that's the thing that, 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 that gets them to say yes, because, you know, there was recently an irrigation project that started at like $40 million dollars goes to like $250 million. Now it's being talked up for $500 million. And I have a friend who followed the entire project, went, drove from the beginning to the end. And he's, he's reporting that there's, there's really nothing going on. There, there's no irrigation activity. Uh, there, there are, there's a ditch and there are some um, motorized sort of uh, uh, levees of some kind, but they're all rusted up. And what, $200 million were spent for this? This is unbelievable. Wow. And of course, he's saying the money clearly went somewhere else. Yeah. It didn't go into this project. Yes. I mean, any project that big is going to be a huge haven for corruption, I can only imagine. Exactly. And without the safeguards, like with the World Bank, you know, saying you've got to use, you know, a tender process, you've got to use, uh, you know, procurement measures, uh, three this, bids. This might be the most complex topic we've ever co- covered on this. Po- I mean, it's still a young podcast, but uh, my head my head is spinning trying to piece this apart. Let me let me ask you this because there's plenty to look at in this topic where it's the you know the struggle between nations and and the U.S. and China, et cetera. But 
I'm someone who I'm just interested in people who are suffering, not suffering in humans doing better <laughs> right across the world. I know there are countries that uh, need help, right? And they could, they look to other nations for help uh, or there is some extent to which, you know, other nations can help them. Uh, what are actual ways that, uh, that, you know, citizens of the U S or the U S government can help folks in need in other countries um, in terms of, you know, bettering the, not talking about refugees in terms of bettering the conditions in those countries. Are there success stories that we can point to and say, this is a good way to do it? Mm -hmm. Well, look, there's, there's approaches where you can look at the, you can tackle the policy level, right? So that you can say, Hey, the U S government is doing it wrong. We need to, we need to advocate for better policies, which would change, uh, you know, an approach, or you can, take the, hey, somebody needs to be fed right now and they yeah. need to get money right away. And so that's the humanitarian direct uh, sort of like, we've got, you, 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 we have to underwrite, uh, you know, more, uh, more uh, money for an immediate situation. Those are, you know, it's perfectly valid to feel that, you know, if you encounter a homeless person here in LA, uh, you feel like you, you want to give them money right away so that they can be better off or to think about it more in terms of, hey, the policy with respect to homelessness in Los Angeles needs to be changed. We need more housing and therefore the things have got to be passed and it's a longer, you know, less satisfying approach. Uh, ideally, we of, can do both of those at once. I mean, as someone who uh, actually cares about and, you know, shows up to events for homelessness in LA, I try to focus on both approaches simultaneously, build houses and make sure people aren't dying today. Yeah, exactly. So with, with foreign aid, I think it's the same thing. You, you, can, you can, you know, support um, uh, centers like the Center for Global Development that looks at, you know, better policies for foreign aid and looks at uh, debt traps for countries that took too much money from China and should be more careful about, you know, dipping too much into those resources so that at some point they'll they'll end up uh, owing so much that it's like the African proverb, if your hand is in another man's pocket, you have to walk where he walks. Yeah. And so, you know, understand the consequences of that. Uh, to, you know, unsustainable debt levels will, will, will lead you to, uh, will lead to problems. And then there's, of course, you know, the, the organization I, uh, we talked about for, for the, that pilot episode of- uh, Give of Directly. Show, Give Directly. Yes. Or in your case, you, you've decided, for example, to, you know, fight malaria with bed nets. And, and these are perfectly legitimate ways. I mean, look, you know, even the ones that were poo-pooed on the show as, in terms of giving a, a, a cattle, like a cat. Yes. We, we, we're making the argument that in-kind gifts are not as good as direct cash transfers, trying to make right. that general. If you give someone a dollar, well, they know what they need to spend on it to make their lives better. You don't need to assume they need a chicken or a new pair of shoes. Right, right. Well, and they can always sell the the calf and and get money mm -hmm. for for it. So, yes. So at some level, uh, it's all of that is better than to simply sit on your butt and say I'm not going to do anything about it because I you know <laughs> it's it's too much of a hassle to uh, open up my checkbook or take out my credit card and actually do something about it. You doing uh, acting in the sense of you know giving. Uh, is is a valuable exercise that that more people ought to ought to undertake because you know the world needs uh, resources from private uh, donors, uh, from governments, from international organizations, and those resources would hopefully you know improve the lot of 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 of, of people in the developing world who have suffered, who you know maybe as a result of that wouldn't then consider as much. 
uh, and again, it sounds very selfish, but wouldn't then need to like migrate. I mean, if you if you if you are truly interested in cutting poverty, for example, the one thing you could do if you wanted to do it immediately was if you take down all borders, people would simply move. People from mm-hmm. poor countries would move to rich countries, and then poverty inequality would be reduced immediately as a result mm. of that. And that's kind of what's been happening, except that we we're now talking about having more borders and more walls, and that's that's the that's the the the, the, the trade off, right? We we created a system after World War II that's based on nation states, on sovereignty, on the idea that you're either a citizen of this country or a citizen yes. of multiple countries, but you cannot. You cannot simply go into another country without, you know, the visa or the green card or whatever it is. And, you it's need. funny to think that, that that is all almost like new since World War II. That 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 strictness of it is it, we put that system into place. Right, and and immigration was always the, this idea of of you know whoever was undesirable was the other. Right, so uh, the Chinese Exclusion Act that kept Chinese men. Uh, 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 so that prevented Chinese men from reuniting with their families, so that you know, essentially, they wouldn't be able to procreate. Uh, was was a, was was one way of 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 of, of keeping out uh, Asians from the United States. Uh, one of the uh, interesting things that happened after the uh, San Francisco earthquake was suddenly a bunch of Chinese were born in the United States because all the records were lost and they were able to then claim that, uh, you know, hey, here's my birth certificate reproduced and it says I was born here, except that, of course, they weren't. But, you know, that, wow. that, that, that made a huge difference. And as a result, they could have rights that they didn't have previously. I mean, you know, there are stories about the, the one thing that, ha- that why are there Chinese, so many Chinese restaurants? Well, for a long time, the only exclusion to the Chinese Exclusion Act was you know, if you had a business and you needed people to work there that were, you know, if you had a Chinese restaurant and you yeah. needed Chinese workers there, then you were allowed to. But, but that's so, so, you know, that was certainly a way of, of bringing in family um, that you couldn't previously. And, and, you know, the whole history of, 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 of America is this vacillation between accepting its, its past that is rooted in the idea of, of, of coming from somewhere else and in in terms of excluding those who are the the other the alien other that that you don't want in at at this particular point in time are you are you concerned about the ways that you see the politics around these issues changing in recent years because they certainly have changed not just in the united states but globally well we're entering now a phase that it, we seem to have forgotten why we uh, created the system that we created after World War II, right? Right. Um, uh, before World War I, uh, the United Kingdom was, uh, was, the British Empire was essentially the hegemon of the world, the, the most powerful uh, country on earth. It, the sun didn't set on, on, on the British Empire. And as it declined, uh, it entered World War One, and between World War One and World War Two, the United States should have essentially understood that its responsibility was to become that hegemon, was to mm-hmm. rise to the occasion of of helping to stabilize uh, the world. And instead, it took another world war for the U.S. to basically wake <laughs> up and realize that wait a minute, we have a responsibility, and the responsibility we're the most powerful country in the world now. Yeah, and and it is to to embed liberalism, it's to create a, a liberal order that, that, that would create more interdependence between countries. The things that you now see in terms of globalization were created after World War II at Bretton Woods uh, in New Hampshire, where a conference 
created the World Bank, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, and the General Agreements on Trade and Tariffs, the GATT, which is now the, the World Trade Organization. Those institutions exist today because at that, at that point, it was understood that who needed help? The first country to get a World Bank loan was France. <laughs> the name of the World Bank officially is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development. Yeah. It was not the reconstruction and development of Africa or Asia. It was the reconstruction and development of, of France, of European countries that had been bombed to smithereens and needed assistance. And, 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 and so as a result, you know, of course, France and so on, uh, develop under a security umbrella that the United States essentially subsidizes our military, um, help protect these countries so that they could spend less money on their own military so that you know they could focus on their economies on becoming more dependent on each other and so they when they got into the european steel and coal community which became the european union this was the intention of creating so much interdependence that you wouldn't have another yeah, world war. Germany we, would never then decide that, you know what, screw France, I'm going to go to war with you. Because the countries could have enough agreement and enough joint security under NATO and under these other organizations that they could compete economically instead of physically with guns and swords. Right. I mean, you look at a map of Europe versus a map of Africa, the uh, conclusion that some international relations experts, Africanists, have is that there are too many suspicious straight lines in a map of Africa. Uh, mm. Every border in Europe was fought inch uh, by inch because somebody died trying to protect that border. <laughs> and in Africa, after decolonization, countries became independent without, you know, that we, they were the creation essentially of, of the Belgians and the French yeah. and so on. And These colonial powers. And once you join the UN, of course, you you can't get kicked out, right? I mean, once you, you become accredited to the UN as a member of the UN, there's really no process by which you become de-accredited and told that, I'm sorry, you don't meet the requirements of being a nation state anymore. You can't defend, you know, you don't have a monopoly on the use of force over your borders. And so um, you need to go now, as in, you know, at a, at a time when failed states like Somalia, for example, we're not operating, but inside Somalia, there's a place called Somaliland that is operating perfectly fine, but it can't become a nation because it needs yeah. to have Somalia approve its, you know, it's a, becoming it, independent. It's like a state that's not a sovereign state under UN rules, right? Som Somaliland, yeah. yeah, yeah. But, you know, you have, you know, traffic lights there, you have, they have their own currency. It's just that they can't, they're not recognized. And there's there are places around the world that are in situations where it's very odd. You know, the rule is, Somalia would have to agree to it, and if they can't agree to it, then you, you can't you can't get you can't break free from it, and and that's 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 a strange world order. Things yeah. have got to change, of course. I mean, you have permanent members of the Security Council that are France, the United States, Russia, China, uh, the UK. I mean, why? Because these were the countries that 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 essentially emerged out of World War II, and why not India? Why not Germany? For example? at this point, yeah, why exactly. not? Um, and, I mean, but we—you said we're forgetting why we created that order because it, it because it prevented another world war, right? So the the yeah. idea was uh, let's make sure that we don't have millions of dead people again uh, and suffer the ultimate price in going to war with each other. Um, let's create stability. Let's create stability and create interdependence that that will prevent essentially like it'll be it'll make more sense to to trade than not to trade so the allegedly the the banner that ran uh, that that uh, flew over the Bretton Woods conference was 
if goods don't cross borders, soldiers will. Mm. This idea that essentially we went to war because we stopped trading with each other, and then it became and then it became so severe as we had these uh, uh, this beggar thy neighbor policy. So people, countries started to devalue their currency and competing with each other by essentially making their money worth less and less, which then created inflation. So that what so that it could trade more. But guess what? If you if both countries devalue their currencies, they've offset each other's impact. So. Uh, it was time to fa- finally re-examine all of this and create an order where the dollar was essentially the anchor currency for all of the Western world's currencies, and the dollar was pegged $35 to an ounce of gold, and uh, the dollar remains the world's uh, reserve currency. Um, countries store the dollar in their vaults in order to essentially trade, and they believe that it will retain its value, even though, of course, we know that you know, lots of inflation during since then, and and a dollar today isn't worth, uh, won't be, you know, isn't the same thing as a dollar from twenty years ago or uh, forty well, years ago. And and the United States, uh, and we we have to wrap up, but I do want to follow this uh, this thought. The United States in the last few years has been signaling its lack of support for all those institutions that it helped create in the years after World War II for NATO and for in, you know for for open trade and and things like that and and all those organizations have their critics on the left and the right but um when you look at the uh, yeah I've, I've generally been aware oh, hold on a second nato is something that like keeps the words world stable right um well the, the the members of nato agree that if any one of them is yes. attacked the others have got to come and essentially it's mutual uh war on one is war on all exactly so then you know nobody in theory nobody would be foolish enough to attack a member of nato because then they'll have everybody else that's a member of NATO go to war against them, and so so that 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 is supposed to keep things uh, safe for the members of NATO. But of course, the argument was, you know, Russia felt like, oh my God, everybody's joining NATO, and then we're the only ones outside, and and now we feel like, you know, it's them against us. For example, I mean, you know, it depends on how one sees it, but there was, you know, that 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 order, of course, is is fraying on the edges and. Economically, we're now in this America first mode, which seems to be saying essentially, you know, mercantilism is back. This mm-hmm. idea that, that uh, you know, we just care about our, ourselves and screw the rest of the world. Well, the entire system after World War II was about essentially America sacrificing in terms of, you know, security umbrella, in terms of dishing out money from, you know, Marshall Plan and, and foreign aid and so on in order essentially to, to, to prevent another world war from happening to essentially stabilize the world to be a hegemon and in, and now we're pulling away from that and saying and we we're 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 saying oh, we have to focus on ourselves and screw screw the rest of the world well that's not you know that wasn't the, that wasn't how the system was supposed to work and when you start destabilizing it that way when you start having trade wars uh instead of uh more you know trade agreements where people uh, do more trading with each other, then you end up with possible problems of you know a return to you know conflict down yeah. the road, and and that's when you'll wake up and realize, oh my God, we were better off than you know we were better <laughs> off trading with each other than actually going to war with each other, and I'm certainly hoping that we're not going to see that going forward. But again, you know, it's that time where the the hegemon, the United States, is kind of becoming. 
you know, waning and who's going to be next? Will it be China? Obviously, the you know, they've self-appointed, but they're not behaving like a normal hegemon in that the norms that they are following are not the norms that, that we were hoping they would absorb, which yes. is, oh, we'll, we, we will, you know, support uh, mutual security or we will, you know, we won't, uh, we will support free trade and so on. They're also thinking about it in terms of, well, you know, if we want to do belt and road initiative and spend a trillion dollars and take over a bunch of ports and so on, that's what we'll do. Or if you, if we feel that, that, um, you know, surveillance is something we want to spread around the world, not just, uh, you know, in China or focus on the Uyghurs, for example, that's something we're willing to do. Well, yeah. these are not the values that have made you know the world freer. These it's, are these it, are human rights abuses. It seems like this is why a, a nuanced understanding of this issue is so important because I hear you hear so much about you know the negative effects of globalization and and you know especially before the world's retreat from it you know all of the negative effects of the IMF the critic criticisms of the IMF you were leveling and the World Bank and you know uh uh all of you know the US foreign policy and and uh the the conflict between NATO and Russia and all those all those genuine critiques um but then also you need this awareness of of what the those institutions have given us in terms of stability um because you know we certainly don't want to return to a a World War One era <laughs> uh, foreign policy. It, it it makes, but then understanding those details and how it all shakes out is so incredibly complex. As you as you've made clear today, <laughs> yeah, exactly. How does all this? Just coming back to where we started this conversation in terms of your own, you know, personal history and your your background. Do you feel that gives you a different perspective on these issues than it does your average, you know, Joe? international economist, uh, development expert walking down the streets? Well, I think so. I mean, I was, I, 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 I lived on welfare uh, through much of my childhood. Uh, when I ended up at the World Bank at age 22, I had just gotten off of, of Medi-Cal, uh, literally. Wow. So, so, you know, and then to get to work on, on, on international, uh, well, what, what's known at the bank as social protection, which is basically international welfare programs for countries, right? So like, you know, if you want to do uh, prevent child labor or do vocational training or do pension systems reform, it was, it was incredible for me to, to, to be, to be in, in, in the middle of an institution where I could provide some perspective from the standpoint of somebody who has actually experienced it as opposed to somebody who maybe grew up between Paris and New York going to boarding school and speaking French. I spoke French, but I didn't speak it because I'd gone to boarding school or learned it from the Lycée Francais or anything like that. I was I spoke French because I'd been a refugee in France, a Cambodian <laughs> refugee in France, and, and I learned it as a result of that experience yeah. and was able to then use it in Algeria and and in work on Tunisia and elsewhere so that I, I could I could deploy these skills that were random in the sense of like, you know, it was it just happened that I was I'd been in 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 France for seven years living there that that allowed me to to then uh, contribute to the work. Um, but yeah, I mean, to be able to provide a different perspective, um, one that isn't uh, isn't the the same one that everybody else has. That's the key. That's the reason why we value diversity, right? I mean, if you yeah. have a board of directors where um, out of ten uh, out of out of ten questions, everybody on the board gets six right, and you think, okay, six right. So now you're going to consider a new board member, 
And out of 10 questions, that person gets four right. And you think, ah, oh, you know, this person doesn't cut it. They only got four right. Well, what if the four questions they got right are exactly the same four questions that the existing board got wrong? Right. That's the whole reason why you want <laughs> diversity. That's what a wonderful metaphor. I never, exactly. I never thought of that before. Well, that's 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 why you know I I, I think we can bring something a different perspective, yeah. something that's valuable that might prevent you know like. Uh, herd mentality where everybody just agrees with each other and then they end up uh, into uh, you know falling into a trap or not seeing or being blindsided or 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 not understanding that uh, that, that 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 situation merits a different perspective. Well, I really appreciate you coming on the show to give us that perspective today, Adam. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it's, uh, it's such a huge uh, huge treat. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Well, thanks again to Sopal for coming on the show. That's it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producer, Dana Wickens, our researcher, Sam Roudman, and Andrew WK for our theme song, I Don't Know Anything. You can find it on his new album. And you can find me on Twitter at Adam Conover. You can sign up for my mailing list at adamconover.net. And, uh, and hey, until next time, uh, we'll see you next week on Factually. Thanks so much for listening. That was a HeadGum Podcast.